Well, good evening, brothers and sisters and uh, young people. Well, we're coming to the conclusion of our Song of Solomon studies with only two nights to go, and tonight we want to try and cover the ninth and tenth songs. We're going to cover the sections which we've entitled The Bride Prepares, which is Song 9, and The Groom Returns, or Arrives, in, in Song 10. It's an interesting connection also with that that we did, dealt with last time, because we're going to chronologically now move into the area where the truth we believe is revived. Remember that we tried to put the Song of Solomon into some chronological order and after the initial response that was there at the time of the Apostles in the, the um, uh, seventh song, which is the longest song of the book, and when the bridesmaids there are represented as those who now seek the truth and ask, what is thy beloved, what is he? How, why is he different to, to other men? They ask those questions. There is that initial response, which of course is recorded in the, in the New Testament. But then the truth goes into decline, and there is that period, of course, that, that in which the truth um, almost uh, disappeared. The time really parallels with that with, that we've been dealing with in, in uh, Elpis Israel into the time of the, the witnesses. And therefore, we noticed when we came to Song 8 last time that it's the shortest song in the book, only three verses. But it ends with the virgins, the bridesmaids again, being the ones that revive it. Now, like in that initial response, we saw that the bridesmaids represented the call of the Gentiles and those who were interested in the truth so it seems significant that in that eighth song it's the bridesmaids again that try to revive the truth as it were there's a class there that say to the bride turn, turn O Shulamite, dance that we may look upon thee and they say what do you see and of course it ends up by saying that we saw as it were um, a company of two armies Mahanaim and uh, so the (coughs) bridesmaids there try and revive as it were the truth now those bridesmaids then take over and they become the major part of this next song, which is Song 9, because the bridesmaids now speak, and they go from verse 1 to verse 5, and the groom then responds from verse 6 to verse 9. So the bridesmaids now come to the fore, and it would seem to indicate to me that in this ninth song we have in fact the time of the pioneers, the time when again the truth was revived, and those bridesmaids play an important part, because like in the first century they were the ones that that uh, asked the questions and and uh, got the revival as it were of the truth in the first century going so it was that there was a time after the the truth had had um, uh, the word of god or that the ecclesia had almost disappeared there's a revival again in the time of brother thomas and brother roberts particularly the time what we call the time of the pioneers and that we believe is what song nine is about so the bride is preparing and that of course is appropriate too in, this, in the Song of Solomon because it's the time when the bride is getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. And there's no doubt as far as the Ecclesia is concerned that Brother Thomas, Brother Roberts, those pioneer brethren were responsible very much for the preparing of the bride uh, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they of course in works like um, Elpis Israel and Eureka um, have, us <coughs> have us looking very strongly for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so it's very appropriate as we said that um, it's the virgins here who again uh, make up, take up the, uh, the cry and, uh, and speak to the bride and, and uh, uh, speak concerning all her beauty verse 8 and 9 of chapter 7 really I think um, emphasises this point that it's a revival of the truth because it goes on we'll pick it up in a moment but just to get it in its, in its chronological setting I said I'll go up to the palm tree this is the groom speaking I'll take hold of the boughs thereof now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples the, I, the phrase take hold in verse 8 has specific reference to pruning and the figure seems to be of pruning this tree it needed pruning at some stage and of course it's the pioneer time period the period that we've just been through really in the truth when the pruning was done and there was a separation again of the the truth and verse 9 goes on to say that the roof of thy mouth is like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak and so the song ends with the groom praising the bride because she's been responsible for causing people to wake up 
Now that again is to me an indication of the time of the pioneers. The truth is revived and the bride wakes up again. And so she is, um, she is commended for the fact that, it is, um, that she has caused um, the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So that's our indications, we believe, that where that is the time of the pioneers. And when we go into the other song for the night, Song 10, that then must parallel our time. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the emphasis in that song, particularly by the words of the bride in the end of chapter 7, is concerning how the things in Israel are going. Go down and have a look at the vine and the fig and the pomegranate and see whether they're growing. Because that, of course, is the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd given the promise, remember? He said, I'll come when the vine is shooting, when the fig is bringing forth fruit, and so forth. So she says, well, I want to go down and see if that time is now ripe. And, of course, that undoubtedly parallels with our time because uh, Israel is there in the land awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So two very important songs we're dealing with tonight. Those are all important, but for us they're very important because they bring us chronologically right into our own time, the time of the pioneers through into our own day. So the virgins begin to speak in chapter 7. Uh, verses 1 to 5 now remember they've just the scene of course you have to carry on the picture they've just asked her to dance remember and she said why should I dance they said because we like watching you dance and we see in you like a company of two like two companies now the expressions therefore from verses 1 to 5 is the bridesmaids looking at her dancing and therefore they talk about all of her her uh, beauty and that comes out particularly in verse 1 because it says there How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Now, the phrase joints of thy thighs like jewels, the idea is, of course, of a necklace. And just as you can get a necklace, let it dangle and move it so that it swishes around. So they saw her in that picture. So it's a picture of movement and beauty. She's not just standing there. She's like a like a, um, a jewels or a necklace that's dangling. And uh, so it, um, a Jerusalem Bible says that the curve of thy thighs is like a necklace. And that's the general idea that's being presented. And so that she's dancing there in front of them. And uh, they acknowledge her beauty. But look what they call her firstly. They call her O Prince's Daughter. Now remember we picked up this phrase before because here's one of the differences between the Gentile bride and the Jewish bride. The Jewish bride we believe was not a prince's daughter. What was she? Yeah, Pharaoh's daughter. She was a king's daughter. This one's only a prince's daughter. So we're moving into a a different bride that's being expressed here. The first bride we believe was Pharaoh's daughter. The Jewish bride. Uh, represented by the, the uh, representing the Jewish bride, but this one isn't. She is only a prince's daughter, and so there's a lowering of status. Still a, a very noble position, but not as great as being a king's daughter. And so we're talking of the of the bride. Now, when it says "O prince's daughter," the word "prince," the word uh, "nordib," n-a-u-d-i-b, actually means noble in disposition, and that's important to what's being presented. Um, because it's an indication of her as well. She reflects that uh, that um, uh, principle of a noble disposition, and uh, that, of course, should be the ecclesia. The ecclesia should always be represented as a, as a royal, as as royalty, really. Um, you know, it's it's sometimes is is it can't be seen sometimes by by brethren and sisters of Christ when they argue about our conduct for instance and why the need for law and order why the need for certain standard of dress in ecclesial life uh, it's hard sometimes to try and impress brethren and sisters with what we're talking about unless they get the whole point to start with and that is that we are royalty we belong to God and therefore we should should show that royalty in the way that we, we would um, show ourselves I mean we'd be very critical today and are critical of how the royal family in England is going downhill and how that today you know, you don't, the, the younger ones particularly are not presenting themselves in, with that royal demeanour that should be there. Um, well, we should show a royal demeanour. Uh, we are the prince's daughter, and therefore that is seen in our actions, it's seen in the way we dress, it's seen in the way we present ourselves. And they're really, in a sense, 
uh, should not be anything of the ochre Australian left in us in that sense. There should be the principles of God which come from his word. And so she is shown, she's seen there as a prince's daughter with all that noble disposition uh, that comes with that. And the joints of thy thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a cunning workman. The phrase cunning workman in the Hebrew is interesting because it, it really literally means a nursing father. It means a father who has looked after something. Now it can be used of course of a tradesman because a tradesman in those days was a man who took a great pride in what he did. And so when he made something it was like a, a nursing father. He looked after it and he treasured that. Um, so it doubles for a cunning workman or a nursing father. But of course if we, tra- if we make it there... Uh, nursing father then we've got the spiritual uh, uh, principle that's involved but here's a bride who reflects her father and she shows that she has been brought up uh, delicately by a nursing father and of course Yahweh himself has been our father in that spiritual sense and therefore uh, that is able to be seen in the way that we deport ourselves we show ourselves the second that's It'd be an interesting tie-up with, uh, with the work of the potter, which has yeah. been moulded by his hands. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. yeah. Hands of the yeah, that would be a good one to put alongside there. I haven't got. I've got very few quotations alongside mine here, but yeah, they're the ideas that would be presented. But that's um, well, there's several places where that is. But is that Isaiah? No, Isaiah cun- sixty-eight. Yeah. Is it the cunning no, workman? 60. No, the potter one. The potter, yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah 20 is it yeah that would be good good ones to put down alongside that because that's that's um, the very idea that is being presented Jeremiah 19 I'll get a pencil that writes a minute Jeremiah 18 4 yep I'll just put Potter yeah and we can fire that one through with some other quotes I've got alongside there actually Ephesians 4 verse 16 where of course um, uh, Paul talking of the body and it is the Gentile body particularly he says that um, we are fitly joined together and that's exactly the presentation here of her she is fitly put together, joined together that's Ephesians 4 and verse 16 but I've got a note there too that that summarises to me what it's talking about she's beautiful she's beautiful in activity now that's the idea of this chain or necklace. She's not stationary, she's in activity and that's where her beauty is seen. And as far as Yahweh is concerned, spiritually, the only way that he sees beauty in us is if we're active too. Um, and so uh, it's contrasted, I suppose, to the bride of the seventh song who is asleep, but her heart is waking. But here's one who is active and he sees her therefore, the bride can see her therefore in all her beauty. Interesting that the thighs should be mentioned here. They're not mentioned in the Jewish section and they would be inappropriate in a sense, wouldn't they? Because the thigh of Jacob represented Israel. Remember Israel halted on his thigh, Jacob halted on his thigh and that was representative of the nation who were constantly in conflict with God and he was, he was a representative of the nation in that and that, that um, withered up thigh, that shrunk thigh of Jacob becomes representative of the Jewish bride but this is the Gentile bride and her thigh is beautiful and does really, does really emphasise the point that Paul was to make in the New Testament that lo we turn to the Gentiles, you have rejected God, lo we turn to the Gentiles there was a response amongst the Gentiles that was not found in the Jewish nation and they were represented therefore by that shriveled up thigh whereas the, Jew, the Gentile bride is represented as having beautiful thighs that are like jewels so there's a, an interesting connection there uh, between, the, um, uh, between Israel, natural Israel and spiritual Israel um, another indicator I suppose we could put down there that this is the Gentile bride um, so we move on into to verse, uh, verse 2 Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Now again we mentioned early in our studies when we were talking of the phrases that are used in the Song of Solomon it's words like navel that offend some people and in fact in most of the translations of that they, they try and make that the waste. 
well that's of course where the navel is found but the point is that the word navel literally in the Hebrew is the is the word for the umbilical cord it means to twist or to curl and talks of the umbilical cord and there's a spiritual principle here involved in verse 2 which if we take out the word navel and put wasting would miss it because it's talking of, a, of one who right from its earliest when it, was, when it was being conceived in the womb was on the right diet and it represents the Gentile bride you see there is a, a sense in which in the New Testament um, we are not yet born we will be born of the Spirit when the Lord Jesus Christ returns we are still in the womb being formed and that's the terms that are used in the New Testament of the Gentile bride of the Gentiles called into the hope and that we are still as it were connected in the womb waiting to be born in the future and so the, the reference to the navel here is an important indication of the spiritual diet that, uh, that this bride is on and has been on uh, from her very uh, youth now there's a couple of quotations you can put alongside that just to prove that that when we talk of the navel we are talking of of the goodness that would come from the mother um, Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 8 and Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 4 if you don't write them both down there's a contrast between them so you better put compare between the two of them uh, Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 8 is positive uh, Ezekiel 16 verse 4 is the negative aspect of this subject of the navel now in Proverbs 3 then, verses 5 to 8, we read this, Trust in Yahweh with all thine heart, lead not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear Yahweh and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honour Yahweh with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. And then it goes on and speaks of the blessings that come from God. So in the context of trusting in God, leaning not to your own understanding, in always acknowledging him, God directing our paths, it shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. And so there is the spiritual lesson for us to intake, as, a, as the babe in the womb does, to intake that which is coming from, in this case, Yahweh. So there's a wonderful spiritual lesson here that's telling us that this bride has, a, has had a constant diet um, of the word of God. The negative one that I quoted you is in Ezekiel, when uh, the opposite is spoken of the navel, when God talks of Israel's attitude, and... Um, he says that uh, when he brought them out of Egypt they, um, they wouldn't shake off the things of Egypt and he talks about them still drinking through the umbilical cord even though he'd taken them out of the land of Egypt. So in Ezekiel 16, um, reading uh, verse, verse, well go back to verse 3 Thus saith Adonai Yahweh unto Jerusalem Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother a Hittite and as for thy nativity, in the day that thou was born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all, none I pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out into the open field, to the loathing of the person in the day that thou was born. Now what he's saying is that they've never forgotten the offsprings. They never tore themselves away from the idol worship that was involved right back in the very beginning when they came out of the land of Egypt. And um, so that they had always kept, while they were, as it were, being born, yet the umbilical cord had never been cut and they were still connected to their former uh, life, their former way. And so it's a very interesting way of using the uh, the umbilical cord in verse 4, the navel was not cut. You have this very strange picture of a child running around with the umbilical cord still connected. And that's how Yahweh saw his people. Nobody had cut it. He still had a connection back with their former ways. Um, interesting, of course, there's a lot of, of um, uh, information in verse 4 of the way they used to... Uh, um, what they used to do with the children and they used to salt them and so forth and uh, uh, of course some of that practice is still carried on in eastern countries today and they wrap the children up and they, they pour salt on them and so forth 
uh, it sounds all barbaric, but obviously they used to do that in the former days uh, to toughen up the child. But the simple thing is that the simple principle, of course, when you compare it with with uh, Proverbs, is that we should be drinking of the the water of life, as it were, that which comes from God. Whereas, of course, Israel were not doing that; they held on to their their former way of life. So, coming back to Song of Solomon, then an interesting phrase that thy navel is a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Interesting the word liquor itself again because the word liquor literally means a mixture. It's wanteth not mixing is how it would actually be translated into the English. Um, And what it means is that this one, the umbilical cord has been mentioned and it has sufficient from that umbilical cord without it being mixed with anything else. Now we've got to see the truth in that light, don't we? That we can get sufficient from the word of God. It does not need to be mixed. This bride is one who, is, who saw that she drank in the word of God, neat. She didn't want to mix with other things. All too often we want to mix it with the stuff from the world and try and make up a mixture, a concoction. But this one didn't need that. And so this, of course, is the, the bride who will be given immortality. And uh, as far as she was concerned, um, her, uh, her navel was just like a round goblet that didn't need mixing. It, or it had in it pure fluid which of course was representative of the word of God. Thy belly, it says, is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. And there we've got a very natural, pretty picture of the way in which, of course, the the wheat was brought together at the waist and flared out and uh, a very lovely symbol of the the waist of this bride. Um, That a waist is, waist would be a better word than belly there. Uh, The waist is like a heap of wheat, but it's set about with lilies. Now, of course, the, we do read, and when we look at the uh, the customs of that time, that it was, in fact, the custom at, uh, at harvest time when they actually reaped the first fruits and put them out in the field, they decked them with lilies and uh, made something of it as the first fruits. And uh, it seems to be referring to that uh, custom which they had. So not only have we got that beautiful shape, but, of course, here, lilies, again, is, uh, is brought to our attention. And we picked up the spiritual principle of lilies before. And then it goes on to say, Thy two breasts are like two young rows of the twins, and thy neck is like a tower of ivory, thine eyes like fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrimmon, and thy nose is the tower of Lebanon, which looketh from Damascus. Remember that in verse 3, where it says, Thy two breasts are like two young rows of the twins. We compared that earlier when we were looking at chapter 4 and verse 5. And in chapter 4 and verse 5, it was the groom speaking, and remember what he added to that, what was added in that context, chapter 4, verse 5? Yeah, among the lilies, in a garden of lilies. So he saw the form or the shape, if you like, but here we've got the bridesmaids. And they, of course, it is quite appropriate for them to see her in all her nakedness. In fact, the custom was that as the bride prepared herself for a wedding day, they actually clothed her. So they can talk about her in all her nakedness. The reference again to breasts, as we picked up before, which right right through the Song of Solomon, of course, speaks of nourishment. And uh, that's the the reason why we need to leave it in the Song of Solomon instead of being a little bit embarrassed by it and trying to change it. It has to be there because it's reference. It is a beautiful spiritual principle of nourishment. Here is one who's not only looked after herself, but she has, as it were, looked after children as well. And uh, it, it speaks of the care which he has had toward the ecclesia in a spiritual sense. And verse 4, Thy neck then is like a tower of ivory, and thine eyes like the fish, ball, fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrimmon, and thy nose is the tower of Lebanon which looketh towards Damascus. I dare say you wouldn't <coughs> think it was a compliment if someone said your nose was like the tower of, Bab- tower of, of, um, <coughs> tower of Lebanon. But... Um, <clears throat> it, uh, of course, is, is couched again in spiritual terms. Ivory, we've got no doubt, of course, as to the spiritual significance of the white hardness of ivory. And eyes, we've looked at before. Now, there's, this time, they're like fish pools in Heshbon. Now, of course, a fish pool would be, um, and I understand that there is still the evidence of these fish pools in the area of Heshbon, um, which was, of course, the royal city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, by the way. Um, a Gentile city, as of course is uh, is um, Damascus mentioned in that same verse. A couple of the evidences we're talking of a Gentile bride here hasn't picked out a Jewish city with a Jewish principle. It's very much a Gentile city, the royal city of Sion, king of the Amorites. But 
the idea of like fish pools, of course, is the clear eyes of somebody. It would be obviously clear pools in which you can see the, the fish. Clear, not, of course, the eyes, and you can put it, if you like, not the eyes of the drunkard of Proverbs 23, verse 29. We did look that up again in the earlier context when we talked of the white eyes of the groom. His eyes were like eyes washed with milk. And we picked up that verse, Proverbs 23, verse 29, but it's applicable here again because there in Proverbs 23 it talks about the intoxicated eye which has all the red rail lines through it um, and the sign of, uh, of uh, intoxication, but not this bride. Her eyes are clear. What? Yeah, in clear, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, clear in the sense of being able to see clearly as well, yeah, it would be. Um, both the eye itself is clear in the sense when you look into it, but it also is clear in the way that it looks out, isn't it? Um, so uh, I suppose verses like, um, uh, well, what verse could we put there? I was thinking of the proverb um, about um, without a vision the people perish, that sort of idea, isn't it? That they're very clear and determined in the way that they're going. The life of the body is the eye. Yep, that's another good one. Yeah, the, if thine eye is, eye is single, and that's that's the very principle that Mark's talking about, um, a clear eye. So they're all good, good good thoughts in regard to the eyes being like fish pools, and they're in Heshbon. The word Heshbon, although it was a Gentile city, uh, literally means hasten to understand. And that, of course, is very fitting. Here's the Gentile bride who's been coming to the hope of Israel and the distinction between her as we've already picked up and the Jewish bride was this one is keen to follow and uh, so her thighs are emphasised and now the eyes are like pools in Heshbon which means hasten to understand and there within Heshbon this pool in Heshbon was obviously by the gate of Bath Rimmon and an interesting phrase Bath, well what's Bath? Bath Hebrew, eh? Opposite to Ben, isn't it? Daughter. Opposite to Ben, yes, yeah, daughter. So we've got daughter, and Rabban is many, daughter of many. So again, the spiritual lesson can't be avoided here. We're talking of the multitudinous bride, a daughter of many. So very fitting places, although they're Gentile, very fitting in their meanings. And thy nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Just one other thing, so on Heshbon, before we go off it, it, although it was a Gentile city, it was one that became one of the city of the Levites in uh, Joshua 21, verse 39. So you've got that beautiful connection between a Gentile city which becomes Levitical. And so we are called out to become king priests. So the idea of priesthood and uh, is there. So um, and there's a lot of ideas will be suggested by that. I mean, even the idea of the breast, which are nourishment, would be linked with the idea of, of priesthood, which is teaching the word of God. So there's all interweaving, interweaving of all sorts of spiritual uh, things here. Every verse, as you go through Song of Solomon, it becomes very clear when you get your concordance out and start looking up words that you could spend a lifetime on a verse, you know, just the spiritual principles as they're picked up throughout Scripture. Um, it is the Tower of Lebanon, and you can put there in the margin, contrast that with the Jewish bride, which was the Tower of David in chapter 4, verse 4. One of those indicators we gave in our first session to show that we're talking of, um, we are definitely talking of a different bride that's emphasised. This one has the Gentile aspect. And it was the tower that we understand was built facing Damascus, which warned of the trouble from the north, as trouble came down from the north so the message would be sent back from the Tower of Lebanon. Now that has its rel relativity to us, of course, and the, uh, I suppose if you want to look at it spiritually, that's what Brother Thomas was. In Brother Thomas's outlining of Daniel and Ezekiel 38, he was like the Tower of Lebanon that looketh towards Damascus. He's telling us of what was happening in the north and warning us of the power that would come down from the north. And it's interesting that it's in this con in this chronological context of course that we uh, have unfolded to us the danger of the, the great power in the north and so she's like a tower of Lebanon which looketh towards uh, Damascus verse 5 thine head upon thee then is like camel and the hair of thine head like purple 
the king is held in thy galleries, in the galleries or tresses, as we would say. Galleries um, doesn't really give the idea of the tresses of the hair. It's interesting that um, um, in uh, uh, in First Corinthians 11, Paul is to say, of course, that the woman is the glory of the man. Um, so uh, this seems to be something of the idea that's presented here because um, uh, the bridesmaids acknowledge that the king um, sees in her something which is beautiful. He sees in her something that, uh, that he desires and it captivates him. And uh, Paul picks up that idea in 1 Corinthians 11 when talking of the position of the woman and man. Purple, of course, is the colour, I believe, of God's manifestation because it's a putting together of blue and red. Um, the red in the negative sense of the flesh, blue, of course, the colour of God, godliness, the spirit. Put it together and you've got purple. So it's the colour of, of uh, God manifestation. And so her head is like God manifestation. Um, and, you know, there isn't any greater subject, doctrine in the word of God, than God manifestation. It's the thing that we have to come to grips with and it's the one doctrine that separates us from the Gentiles, separates us from the apostasy. They just can't understand the doctrine and never will. It's the one doctrine that separates us and distinguishes the bride is that she does understand God manifestation. <coughs> so that it's, it's again appropriate that uh, it's linked with her head, the area that of course all her thinking comes from. And then from verse 6 to 9 now, the groom answers... <clears throat> and he's witnessed all this he's witnessed in a sense the the uh, the delight that the bridesmaids have had over the bride and now he adds his piece to it and he says how fair how pleasant art thou O love for delights this thy stature is like to a palm tree and thy breasts to clusters you notice of grapes there is in italics it obviously wouldn't be clusters of grapes it would be clusters of dates because it's a palm tree but we're going to notice that it's a strange palm tree because it brings forth other fruit as well. I said, I'll go up to the palm tree. I'll take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So the groom outlines the beauty of the bride as he sees it. Now the palm tree, as we picked up before, is to be compared with the Jewish bride who is the fig tree in chapter 2 verse 13 and the palm tree of course comes to represent the Gentiles and we get that particularly from the 70 palm trees back in the coming of uh, Israel out of Egypt to, to Elam um, I've got in the margin of my Bible I haven't got it written here but I've got it on the margin here of my old Bible and some of you have probably done the study of the the palm tree, all of the qualities of the palm tree. Um, I can find it here. I'll read out what I've got here as the qualities. It's um, it's the one tree we're told that absolutely everything in the tree can be used for something. It's probably one of the most useful trees that God created. With Song of Solomon, after Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> yes, so I've got a list up here. You can write these down if you want to. You can add to it or whatever. Uh, it's straight, upright, useful, beautiful. I'm not doing sure. Oh, aren't you? <coughs> I can't just put down S U U. <laughs> uh, how'd you go? Uh, we'll go again. Straight, upright, useful, beautiful. Strong, stable, fruitful. Uh, I've got guidance to water. In other words, it, of course, that's why they grow where they do because they have a, a very strong scent for water. Uh, a sign of victory. The palm was a sign of victory. So that's the ones I've got listed down. But going in that, I thought of one other, and that was. Um, um, what's the word? Supple, aren't they? They're a thing that can almost bend double, which is sometimes necessary too, in the truth, for us to be able to bend with the circumstances of life. I had another one. What do you have? The palm tree grows from the 
inside out from the heart. Yep, good one. Yes, it does. Yes. Right, so they continue to grow upwards. You can't, yeah, and straight. Mm. Yeah. All right, then of course there's the, the fruit that comes from it as well, which is um, uh, which has got its spiritual application, the date of course, and we'll come on to that in a moment in the next song. Um, but, um, <coughs> yeah, so, so there's a lot of principles coming out of the use of the palm tree. And again, as we said and we've been saying before, that um, these are, are principles that we spend a lot of time on. Um, the quote to put alongside that would palm tree would be Psalm 92 verse 12 that the righteous shall flourish as a palm so that's your, your spiritual principle there and the breasts again are emphasised because here's the nourishment and uh, they are like clusters of dates very staple diet um, used for energy particularly dates um, but then he says that he's going to do something with this palm tree and he goes up and he prunes it and it, now notice in verse 8 now it doesn't bring forth dates it brings forth grapes um, so it spiritually has changed and I think there's a wonderful principle in this because basically speaking the date is a dry fruit without any moisture in it whereas of course the, the um, vine and the grape is noted for its moisture and of course it's used in the word of God as representative of the word is the grape, not the date so there's a need although it looked beautiful there was a need for, for uh, Christ to prune it and we raise the point of course in our life that we must always be ready, for, uh, ready and able for the Elohim to prune us God's going to prune us all through our life we might be a Gentile date tree but he wants us to bring forth fruit and glory, fruit of glory unto him and so we've got to be prepared to see God working in our life and, and uh, trimming us and pruning us. So that phrase, take hold, is a phrase that particularly uh, refers to the pruning of a tree. And uh, so we have to be prepared to be, truning, be pruned. And you see the next word, and I've got a ring around it, it then says, I'll take hold of the boughs thereof now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine. So there's a change that's taken place. So not only is she a, she a wonderful palm tree in verse 7, but now she's got the addition that she brings forth the fruit of the vine. So she's, she's developed spiritually. And uh, the smell of thy, not nose, it's not her smelling, it's her breathing. So it's actually breath, the word nose. The smell of her breath is like apples. So as she breathes out, there is a sweet smell, a smell which, of course, is beneficial even itself and shows she's been on a spiritual diet. So several points again raised in one verse, and that is the need for pruning and secondly, of course, uh, for a spiritual diet. The roof of thy mouth is like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. And so he speaks of the influence that she has, not only on him, but on also all those she comes in contact with. And so she's caused those that are asleep to speak. Now, as I said, I believe that's got special emphasis or special reference back to the previous song where we have that very short song where the bride really um, is, um, uh, is spiritually asleep, almost died out, and now it comes to life again. But even so, even if we don't accept that, of course, the spiritual song there, or the spiritual lesson there is very clear that he is one who is able to help others who are very weak. You know, Paul is to talk in 1 Corinthians 11 of those that are weak and sickly among you and those that sleep. Now, we are to be, as brethren and sisters, to those who are sleeping, we should revive them um, and, uh, and get them up and doing. And this bride has done that. So that her effect on people is that she revives them and uh, it's a wonderful thing that the, uh, the groom can see that quality in the bride so we move on to the tenth song when now we've titled it The Groom Arrives we've done that of course as we pointed out originally in these studies to fit in with the marriage customs although in, in reality there's no reference to the groom in this song it's just the bride speaking and as she prepares herself for him um, and as she sees him coming uh, in the, the 
parallel with the Gentile section as she sees him coming. This is the one, of course, where he comes to the windows and tells her that he's, he's come. Um, uh, the bride here is just reminiscing but it's got some very interesting uh, indications to ourselves as to the time slot that it fits into because it's it's us now it's those who are alive and awake when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth so the bride speaks from verse 10 in, in chapter 7 right through to chapter 8 verse 4 it's all the bride now talking and she says I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me towards her husband and Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 where God says to to Cain that his desire shall be toward thee and what does it actually refer to well the word literally means to return or to restore so when you go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 you've got an important principle here I've heard this sometimes that's a little bit misquoted where we it's suggested that in Genesis 3 and verse 16 that thy desire shall be to thy husband is a reference to the fact that, you know, in the, in the context of marriage that she must always love her husband. But it doesn't mean desire at all. It means, of course, as we said, return or restoration. And in fact, in the margin, if you go back to Genesis 3 and verse 16, you'll find the margin translates it for you. It's a principle that Paul is to pick up in Ephesians 5 where he says that the husband is the saviour of the body, saviour of his wife, as Christ is the saviour of the body. Salvation depends upon the husband. And so it says in verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. See the margin, which actually gets the correct idea from the Hebrew, that um, they shall be subject to thy husband. But it's even stronger than that. It's thy restoration will be from thy husband, is the idea. So you'll only get restoration. She would only get restoration. The only way she could return to God was through her husband. And uh, hence, of course, is the emphasis then in Scripture of the position of the man. Um, So... This bride, ignore it, this bride acknowledges in verse seven that that, that uh, she has, she she is um, uh, her husband has restored her or returned her. Uh, he is her salvation, is what she's actually saying in chapter seven and verse ten. I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. His restoration is towards me. Now we surely can pick up what that's talking to us. Every time we go on a Sunday morning, we've got the bread and wine in front of us. It's a symbol of his restoration is towards us. It's not towards others, it's towards the ecclesia. And we as the ecclesia benefit in his restoration work, in the atonement. So she acknowledges that his atoning work is for her. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. (coughs) You could perhaps put alongside that Luke 22 verse 15 where where Christ was to say to, to the disciples words that he is to repeat in the kingdom age with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you and uh, that's using it in the sense of desire but it reminds us of course that the work that he has accomplished is on our behalf so his restoration is towards him towards her I mean I've got another quote alongside that because to me it emphasises a wonderful spiritual point. Romans 8 verse 31 Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from it. And she acknowledges that. That um, she is her beloved. And all that he's done has been on her behalf. Come my beloved let us go forth in the field let us lodge in the villages let us get up early in the vineyards to the vineyards let us see if the vine flourishes whether the tender grape appears, the pomegranates bub forth, there will I give thee my loves, the mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Now in simple terms, what the bride is saying is that she wants to go and see if those indications of his coming are there. Remember that back in the uh, second chapter, when um, he said he was coming, he gave her all the signs of his coming. And the signs of his coming were, of course, that the vine was going to flourish, the fig tree was going to bring forth, and so forth. Now, she knows that that's the sign of his coming. 
so she wants to go down now and see those see as to whether it is the wedding day and so she says let's go down and have a look <coughs> so she goes forth into the field um, and let us lodge in the villages the word lodge there actually does mean to dwell permanently so it's not somebody going on a holiday she wants the wedding to come for her to be able to dwell with her husband forever and so she goes down to see whether everything is ready for them for that wedding day and whether they can go into their marriage so she says let us lodge in the villages the word villages is an interesting word there because it's not the normal word that's used for a house or anything like that it is in fact the word kafar now who knows the word kafar what's the word kafar covering, atonement, it's a word translated atonement and uh, so of course it means a covered or a protected place but again very very significant with in link with verse 10 because that's the principle of verse 10 his desire or his restoration is toward me now it's acknowledged again even in this word villages because it's saying really that he is her atonement and um, so he sees, she sees very clearly um, her position so although it can refer to a, a house, that which is covered, uh, it's from that word kafar, and uh, the word that's used for atonement. So the words are carefully chosen, as we found in many other places in Song of Solomon, if there be three or four words that can be used for a particular thing, and one has more of a spiritual value that fits in with the book, that's the one that's going to be chosen. And that's why we have to look at it very, very closely. Let us get up early into the vineyards and let us see if the vine flourishes and whether the tender grape appear. Now you can actually cross-reference that back to the second chapter. I haven't got up... Uh, yes, chapter 2 and verse about verse 13, I think it is. <coughs> um, 2 verse 13 is the one. Um, when he says, uh, in verse 10, he says, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So he tells them when they're going to marry, what the wedding day is. And he says of that time that the fig tree puts forth her green figs, the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Same terminology. And so it's the same time period. He's arriving. She, she wants to, to see the evidence of, uh, of the beginning of their marriage. Now those are the terms in those verses, of course, that relate to Israel. And they would have special um, or significance to us because um, that's really our position. Uh, instead of, I suppose, spiritually, instead of saying, is he coming, we say, what's happening in Israel? It's the same, one of the same things. Um, we can either say, you know, is he coming or what's happened this week in Israel? It's saying the same thing. And so she talks about those principles that relate to Israel. Alongside that verse, or those two verses, verse 12 and 13, you could put down Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11, where the terminology is very similar and speaks of God's blessings upon Israel um, and the time, in fact, of the inclusion of the Gentiles. I'll read it for you, Isaiah 61, which of course is the chapter of um, when Israel will become spiritually revived. And reading verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so shall Adonai Yahweh cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So there's a wonderful connection in, ter in, in idea with those words and what we're reading here. The Gentile bride being included into the hope, the blessings coming from God as likened to a bride adorned with, um, uh, with jewels, Word, the same word jewel that's actually found in the previous song to this one and um, uh, things growing forth upon the earth so all the idea, spiritual ideas are brought together here in uh, verse 12 and 13 now in verse 13 it goes on and says thy mandrakes give a smell and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits now mandrakes has caused a bit of a problem with, um, uh, with uh, the understanding of this verse simply I suppose because 
we wouldn't really believe that the mandrakes had any special power like of course you know the story back in Genesis and the mandrakes the, the, the love fruits as they were called it's the name that was given to them and who was it uh, that purchased them uh, took them Leah Leah and yeah well, it was, it was Rachel took them off Leah, wasn't it? Or something? Wasn't Leah brought them back and Rachel took them off them? Anyway, whatever it was, we know the story. And, and the suggestion was, of course, that if they partook of that fruit, then there would be conception. And that's, of course, I suppose very fitting to this, that um, the mandrakes give a smell that everything's ready for the marriage day and for the consummation of the marriage. So you could read it that way. But I think there's a very interesting spiritual thing here as well. Because you see, this word mandrakes is actually the Hebrew word for basket. It's the, it's the word that's used in Jeremiah 24 of the ba- two baskets of figs. Remember when Jeremiah 24, uh, God, is, God tells Jeremiah um, before him were two, or he saw a vision of two baskets. One had good figs in it, one had naughty figs in it. And he spoke of those figs as representative of Israel. Perhaps we can turn it up because I see a connection. You may not pick this up and it's not your fault. It may be just the way I'm looking at it and because I've had time to think about it also. But um, I see a connection here and I wonder whether in fact it's got nothing to do with mandrakes as a fruit but it's referring to these baskets of which the good figs would give forth a smell. Because remember, if you go back to chapter 2, fill in the detail why I came to this conclusion, back in chapter 2, when the fruits are mentioned, the fig is mentioned. It's not mentioned here. The only fruit that's missing out of this picture is the fig. But if we make these mandrakes baskets of figs, then figs feature. And in fact, in, in, in uh, Jeremiah 24, um, it seems that this was the idea anyway of the figs. The, the good figs represented... Uh, the those of Israel who would accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh, after that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs of our first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs which could not be eaten, they were so bad. He goes on to say, well, might as well read the chapter because it will explain it. Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good, and I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. You see, it's specifically talking about Judah, the ones in the land at the coming of Christ. And I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them out. These are the good fruit figs. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. But as for the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes, the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, and to reproach, and a proverb, and so forth. So those that would come back into the land and be there when Christ returns would be the good figs of this, fi- this figure. Now that word basket in verse, verses 1, 2 and 3, is it 3, 1, 2 and 3, 1 and 2, uh, is this word that's here translated as mandrakes. So I think myself, it, it is the filling out of the figure that we got out of chapter 2. When she says go down, she says I'll go down and we'll see if the vine flourishes, the pomegranates bub forth and whether the figs give a smell the basket of figs and she's not just referring to them now as figs but in this word basket is a reference back to Jeremiah telling us that this is the class who will be in the land at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ now that may be a bit far-fetched you may not agree with that but to me that fits in and I feel a bit more even comfortable with that than the idea of mandrakes because uh, it doesn't seem to be a principle um, the mandrakes idea and uh, what they represented doesn't seem to be one that's really endorsed by God but nevertheless, uh, maybe it's using mandrakes simply in that 
in a, in a sense that it was traditional that they spoke of love and conception. But you can accept either of those two ideas. Um, that it gives a smell and that agates a full manner of all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old. Um, we might just, before we go off mandrakes, mention that of course the word itself comes from the root for David. It comes from the word dude, uh, the word, the, the, the root word for beloved and the idea how it can be a basket is that it, you remember what that word meant? we did actually we put down all the words for love what does dod or dude dowd or however you like to pronounce it what does it mean? here's, here's etymology for you in, in Hebrew to boil, over. to boil over so therefore it can represent a basket or a pot see that's how the Hebrew works so that's how you can refer to the same word can refer to a pot and by extension to a basket can refer to a receptacle because the word means to boil so to boil anything you put it in a receptacle therefore the receptacle can also be called a dot or a dude or a doubt <laughs> um, so um, that's the connection that's the etymology of the word and uh, that's the base for mandrakes the word beloved as we mentioned before this word dod is actually um, the base of 37 words in the Song of Solomon, just in the Song of Solomon alone. So it's, um, it's very much a theme, this, this idea of love. And there are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee. Uh, the bride, of course, is talking of the beloved. And that word laid up literally means to be covered up or hidden. So she's hidden them as a surprise for him. Um, beautiful figure that's presented here because she's actually saying to, to the beloved, to her beloved, uh, that there are fruits here that you haven't even seen. Now in the, in the real sense of the word that won't be the case because Christ on behalf of his Father will know all of our life. But it's using of course the natural story as a base and here's a bride who feels that she's got hidden things that she can give to him and uh, so she talks of these fruits that have been developed and they're new and old you know again there's a word take the phrase new and old and follow it through scripture you know it's, it can refer to the new and old covenants brought together it can refer to the fact back in the in, uh, is it in Leviticus that God when he's talking to Israel says when talking about I remember when he says about sowing the seed that it was so necessary for them that when they, when they collected the seed sorry at harvest they had to keep some aside that they might sow again next year and he says that's old but when you put it in the ground something new will come out of that so you've got to use old to get new he says and there's a spiritual principle in that we, we liken it to the word of God we have to have the old before we can understand the new we've got to have the old covenant the Mosaic covenant before we'll ever understand the new so our life is made up of this blend of new and old so Christ can say in the New Testament after dealing I think it's with the parable of the uh, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price he ends up by then saying to the Pharisees that uh, the kingdom is like a man who brings out of his treasure things old and new so this idea of old and new has, is a theme going right through scripture and picked up here as a principle, spiritual principle seen in the bride can apply to the blending of, of uh, things in our life so many things in our life and certainly has a lot of spiritual connotations <coughs> and in chapter 8 then she starts to lament because she starts now to think of all if it was it were the lost opportunities as she sees it and she says oh I wished I were your that you were my brother and remember that's our other key you you can um, compare that with chapter 4 verse 9 and 5 verse 1 where the Jewish bride is his sister behold my sister spouse he calls her but this bride is not his sister at all and she in a sense laments that and the lost opportunities that were given because let's remember that we're talking of a natural wedding here and the Jewish young couple could not have any physical contact at all and she's thinking in terms now of physical contact and she's had to wait all this time before she could actually touch her beloved and she says I wish you were my brother and I could have touched you a long time ago I could have had you hugging me and she goes on to say in verse 11 your hand could have been under my head and your right hand could have embraced me all that time would have been apart if you'd been my brother and so that's what's the context in which she's talking about her, the physical contact that she desires with her husband and so she says oh that you were as my brother um, that uh, suck the breast of my mother 
Uh, when I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. And that's the key. Why wouldn't she be despised? Well, because she could do that to her brother. She could go and kiss her brother and nobody would say anything. But she was not allowed to kiss her beloved because they were engaged. And that was forbidden by the law. So she says, if you were my brother, I could have kissed you and nobody would have worried. And so she's really talking about that, that um, as she sees it, the missed opportunities in her life. And I suppose we have to feel that way spiritually of Christ that um, we can't see him. All we've got before us is the word to outline him, but what a wonderful day when we will actually see him and we'll be able to touch him. Um, and uh, I suppose spiritually we'll feel like this bride, that it would have been loved to, lovely to have had more time with him. And uh, that's what she's saying. Now the principle of being a brother is picked up in Proverbs. You can write down a couple of verses there. Uh, Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17 and 18.24 on both those occasions they, it, it refers to this closeness of a bond with a brother and this is what she's talking about she's talking about um, a very close bond that between them and she says one thing to be your wife but it would have been lovely to be your sister and um, so in Proverbs 17 verse 17 a friend loveth at all times but a brother is born for adversity um, I've got the Septuagint in the margin if you want to write this down it's rather interesting um, where it says uh, uh, that verse 17 thou hast a friend for every crisis and let brethren help in adversity for, for this are they made yeah, thou hast a friend for every crisis and let brethren help in adversity comma for comma for this are they made thou hast a friend for every crisis and let brethren help in adversity for for this they are made are they made Right, so that's the, the idea, that that's what a brother is for. He's there for adversity. And applying that spiritually here, you can understand the bride saying, oh, I wish you were my brother, I wish you'd been here. I mean, there's got to be times in our life, doesn't there, when things don't go right, we'd say, isn't it, wouldn't it be lovely to have Christ here to handle this issue for us? And that's really what she's saying, spiritually. The other is in chapter 18 and verse 24, which is an interesting one. It's linked with verse 22. I think we've quoted this before. It's a die stitch, meaning it's it's linked two verses, but with one in the middle that's got nothing to do with it. So verse 22 and verse 24 are the die stitch, and it says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favour of Yahweh. Verse 24, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, but there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now it's an interesting context, because verse 24 actually where it says a man that has friends must show himself friendly that's a true principle but that's not what it's saying it really says there are friends that pretend to be friends in other words there are friends that show themselves to be friendly but there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother and that word sticketh closer is the word cleave which is our key to the fact that it's verse 22 it's a wife a wife will stick closer than a brother so it's the end result so while it is true that a person, I suppose, out of a marriage bond, the strongest friend they could have would be in their family, yet when they leave father and mother and cleave unto their wife, they have a friend which is stronger than their own family. And that, of course, is true in many cases in our life, as we know. And uh, so, a very interesting verse. I think I might have told you this story before, but in verse 22, the Jews, in their typical way, um, that word findeth there is the word matzah, right? Matzah. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and attain favour of the Lord. There's another verse in, in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 27 that says, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and, and whose hands are nets. Is it? Something like that. And whose yeah, hands are nets. Anyway, it's talking of a, 
a woman who is overbearing. And the word there is matzah as well. But the Jews have actually changed the sound of it from one make matzah, the other metzah. So they can distinguish between the two verses. And when a young man comes up and says, I've found a wife, they say metzah or matzah. <laughs> In other words, uh, time will tell. But um, yeah, it's just a saying of theirs, metzah or matzah. And they're referring to those two verses. Um, but that's a... That's an aside. All right, back to chapter 8 and verse 1. So she, as we said, she would have loved to have had him there during the experiences of her life. That's what she's saying. And she said, no, I wouldn't be despised. And you could put a note there that, of course, that would be based on the fact that she could have no physical contact as as his beloved. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, not who, but you, would instruct me. It's important to the meaning of that verse. Um, it's not. It doesn't really make sense there. It's, I mean, it almost reads as though the mother would teach him. But what she's saying is, I wish you were in the same house as me, and you could have instructed me, and uh, we could have spent all that time talking together. And again, not hard to see the spiritual lessons. Wouldn't it be lovely to have Christ here instead of me, um, teaching us from the Word of God? No greater teacher than that. And so he says, I wish you'd been in my house all the time, there instructing me. And then she says, I would cause thee to drink of the spice wine of the juice of my pomegranate. And so she says that I would have given you something as well. Now, spice wine in Proverbs 9 and verse 2 is the word that's used of wisdom. Um, That wisdom is a spiced wine. I've got um, Proverbs open, so I'll read chapter 9 and verse 2. Reading verse 1, Wisdom hath builded her house, she hath hewn her seven pillars, she killed her beasts, and hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. So it's an identification with this bride, of course, as being wisdom. She is a wise woman, a virtuous woman, and she has the spice wine of wisdom. But it's her pomegranate. Uh, Remember earlier we looked at the word, at the pomegranate and how that it particularly represented sacrifice. It represented the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here she replies it to herself. So she says, in in essence, she says that um, uh, I could have made sacrifices for you. You've made a sacrifice for me. But if you'd been here, I could have made sacrifices for you. And of course, we all we should be prepared to lay down our life as he did. Verse three, his left hand would have been under my head she's talking of past tense she's talking of had he been there she says his left hand could have been under my head and his right hand could have embraced me and so she's talking of of the time that they could have spent together uh, which he was unable to do and then verse 4 comes that lament again as she talks to her bridesmaids I charge you O daughters of Jerusalem that you stir not up nor wake my love until he please now remember I said to you that before when we dealt with those, and I think it's three or four times that, that word occurs, there's several meanings to the to the phrase. It doesn't seem to be really clear, but here it would seem to perhaps um, support the idea that she talks in. She, it's really a exhortation to the bridesmaids not to artificially stimulate love. In other words, the time will come. Don't artificially stimulate it. It will come and um, that's her exhortation again to the bridesmaids I charge you O daughters of Jerusalem that you stir not up nor wake my love till he please nothing like the real thing and uh, so she finishes off uh, her comments on her husband uh, that way and that will finish our studies for tonight Um, when we come together in our next class God willing we'll conclude the last two songs and um, we'll see the very clear parallels with the two songs in the Jewish section as the bride now comes forth from Sinai uh, moving to Jerusalem in the the spiritual lesson of it and speaks of our future time whereas tonight as we said we've really dealt with chapters that deal with our position now as we wait the coming of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ.